All right. Good morning. Good to see you all. Thank you, Pastor Allen. Uh, I've got to say, uh, meeting him at the conference earlier this year was such a joy. And then, like he said, we've uh, been having conversations as the year has gone on about church and ministry and what's going on here at Outer West. And uh, I just want to say to you uh, that you have a really, really good young pastor on your hands. He's a man of integrity. He's godly. He loves you. So give, up, give it up for Alan. And um, I'll just say to this, this is like coming from a pastor who has been taken care of by good churches. Uh, take care of this man. Could you surround him and surround his family and make sure they feel uh, built up and loved by you all? My name is Andrew, like Pastor Allen was saying. Uh, really happy to be here with you this morning. This is my first time to San Antonio. And uh, I traveled here this weekend with my daughter, Bella, who's 14, sitting on the front row over there. And uh, we lived it up uh, at Six Flags yesterday, which was so much fun. We did all the rides, spent five hours there. And then, uh, and then we went downtown. Y'all's Riverwalk is like so spectacular. It's so great. And then, and this is a true story, we had every intention of visiting the Alamo. And we kept saying... All day long, we kept saying, remember the Alamo. And then we got back to the hotel last night and we went, we forgot the Alamo. <laughs> you had one job. <laughs> Just don't forget the Alamo. So anyway, but so happy to be here. So cool to see all the stuff that God is doing in your midst. Uh, like the video said, and like Pastor Allen said, I'm starting a series this morning called Life Together, which is really just looking at the early church and the way that the early church structured its life together and seeing if we can't draw some lessons from that for how we might live as the people of God here in the 21st century. So I'm in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, and I'll start in verse 42, and then I'm going to jump earlier in the book of Acts, just a little bit later in the message here. Those of you that have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen behind me. And if you don't want to read it in your Bible or watch on the screen, you can just listen to me talk or whatever, or plug your ears or don't do anything. I don't know, but it's good to have you here, wherever you find yourself. Here's Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Hear the word of the Lord. The scripture says, they, this is the early church, they devoted themselves. Everybody say devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. The Greek here is literally that they bound themselves to. These handful of things, listen to it carefully, the apostles' teachings, that's the first thing that they bind themselves to, is the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. It's so good to be in your house this morning, oh God. The psalmist said, I love the house where you live, oh God, the place where your glory dwells. And we know, as Solomon said, that you don't dwell in a house built by human hands, but it's your people coming together, being built together by the Spirit. That's the house of God. And Jesus, your promise to us was that wherever two or three were gathered together in your name, you'd be there, right in the midst of them. And we take that promise to heart this morning, and we take even more to heart uh, what's baked into that promise. You said that wherever the two or three were gathered together, that you'd be in their midst to bind and to loose. And so that means that in our midst this morning, you're binding up lies and you're binding up strongholds and you're binding up all of the powers of darkness against us. And you're also loosing the power of the kingdom of God over our lives. You're loosing the power of the spirit into our lives. And so I'm praying this morning. I've got my stuff that I plan on saying, but you have to do so much more with it. Just like you take the bread and the cup of communion and you do so much more with it, I'm asking that you would take the words of Scripture. I'm asking that you would take the preacher's words here 
and that you would do so much more with it, that somehow the Pentecostal miracle would take place in our midst this morning, that you would take these words and you would translate them to every one of the folks that are in this room and watching online in a language that they can understand. Help us take these words to heart and be changed by them. Minister to us, living word of God. We're, asking, we're pleading for that. Help us. And we say, may the words of the preacher's mouth this morning and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, the text says they devoted themselves. Everybody say devoted themselves. So they bound themselves to these four things, the apostles' teaching to fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer. The first of those four things that they bound themselves to is the apostles' teaching. And you might be sitting here, there this morning going, okay, well, that sounds really great, but uh, uh, Pastor, what is the apostles' teaching? Well, I'm really glad that you asked. The apostles' teaching was a really considered body of knowledge concerning the Lord Jesus, and that's the thing that they anchored themselves in. And there are lots of different ways that we might give expression to what the apostles' teaching was, but I think the best place to start is as close to this text as we can possibly get. I want you to back up if you have your Bibles to uh, verse 22 of the same chapter. Now, the scripture says, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost to the gathered onlookers there. And he says, fellow listeners, Israelites, listen to this. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Now, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked people, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, and my body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You have filled me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, Peter says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne, seeing what was to come. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. But God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David didn't descend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'm going to say it one more time, brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, Thanks be to God. Amen. What does Peter do? He's got this gathered group of onlookers. Onlookers, the day of Pentecost has happened. They have all spilled out into the streets, speaking in other tongues. And Peter stands up in the midst and he knows that he's got to say something to these people. And what does he do? He tells the story of Jesus from beginning to end. And then later in the text, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching. What is the apostles' teaching then? It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus hooked into the Old Testament story. It's the story of Jesus told as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. So if you ask that question of the early Christian uh, church, you know, like, what is the apostles' teaching? What's the bedrock? What's the cornerstone that we build the life on the church on? They say, well, it's just the story of Jesus. And I love one of my favorite theologians of the last century, Robert Jensen, says this, that the gospel is, this is the gospel, it's the story of Jesus told as a promise. That somehow everything that Jesus lived and taught and did for us, 
That is the gospel of God. That is the good news of God over our lives. And it's the promise over our lives that our lives are actually heading somewhere meaningful. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to take the story of Jesus and I want to talk about five different elements of it that I think are critical for us to understand. Five elements of the Jesus story. Let's just start here this morning and say this of Jesus, that Jesus is the one who is with us. I know we've got that. Oh, yes. Jesus is the one who is with us. Jesus brings this beautiful trajectory of the Old Testament teaching to fulfillment in his own life. Think about how many times in the Old Testament, Pastor Allen said it actually during the communion part of the service. He said the promise of the Lord is that I will be your God and you will be what? Anybody know it? I'll be your God. See, I need you to talk back to me this morning. I'll be your God and you're going to be what? My people. That's the promise of God. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God consistently reaffirms this promise to his people. He says to them, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And he'll say, I will never leave you and I will never, can anybody finish it? Forsake you. I'm like, that's never going to, that's never going to happen. I am never, there, it doesn't matter what you go through. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how much you try to give me the stiff arm. I am never cutting bait with you because I will be your God and you will be my, my people, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that promise hangs up kind of in the clouds in the Old Testament. But then we come to this moment in the New Testament where this promise gets nailed down into the very dirt. The scripture says that the word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Lord, the word became, can anybody finish it? Flesh and did what? Made his dwelling among us. Jesus in Matthew is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you don't know anything else about Jesus, you got to know this about Jesus, that Jesus is God with us in the flesh. Jesus is our companion in all the highs of life and all the lows of life and all the mountaintop moments of life and all the valley moments of life. Jesus is the one who is with us. Karl Barth, the great theologian in the last century, said that God with us is the center of the Christian message, he said. It's the very center of it. It's the heart of it. God's with us. And everything else, Karl Barth said, is circumference. It all just kind of floats around this affirmation that somehow in the person of Jesus, we have met the God who is with us. He's our companion. He's called alongside us. And I don't know if you know that in your life, but if you don't, you need to know that. That when you say yes to Jesus, he binds himself to you in the cords of covenant love, and he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. And I'm born and raised in the church. And uh, I remember being part of a church one time years ago where the pastor said, he was, this is one of his big things, he was, like, he was like, you know, if you don't know when your spiritual birthday was, if you can't mark it on the calendar, then maybe it didn't happen in your life. And I always really took offense to that because I'm 42 years old, born and raised in church. There's never been a moment of my life where I did not know Jesus Christ as very real and as powerfully present to me all the time. And it started so young. I remember there was this song that we used to sing when I was a kid growing up in church. I will cast all my cares upon you. Some of you know it. I will lay all of my burdens. You're like, I didn't know the pastor was going to sing this morning. This is uncomfortable. <laughs> Down at your feet. You know the song? And anytime I don't know what there it is to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. I knew you knew it. Good job, church. And I would take such consolation in that when I was a kid. When I was in hard moments, dark moments, difficult times, 
I would just kind of start singing that song. I will cast all my cares. Like, what a beautiful affirmation that all the stuff that's heavy for us and hard for us and difficult for us. Jesus is like, I can take that. I want that. Oh, you feel like you're over your head or you feel like you don't know what to do or you don't know which way to turn. Isaiah says whether you turn to the right or to the left, you know what you're going to do? You're going to hear a voice behind you saying this is the way. Walk in it. In all those years, I started singing that song probably when I was three, four, five years old in the church. I'm 42 years old now and I still, when I'm in those dark moments and those hard moments, I'll still sing, I will cast all my cares. Jesus, you're with me. You're with me. You're with me. Do you know that about Jesus? And do you know that he's good to you and that he's kind to you? That he's not with you in some kind of way where he's trying to like beat you down and make you feel bad about yourself or make you feel like you're not doing enough? Do you know that he's the one that like he comes, he's like he's called alongside us. He's the helper of Israel in the flesh. He's our helper in the flesh. And so he says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you some, you know what? Rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble and hard. For my yoke, he says, is easy and my burden is. He's not going to place anything heavy or ill-fitting on us. He just wants to walk alongside us and to help us. And we can take all the heavy and the hard stuff of our lives and give it over to him. And do you know what he gives us in return? Peace, love, joy. Think about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God so we take all this stuff that we're burdened by and we lift it up before the Lord and then you remember what Paul says that you're going to lift this up before God and what's going to happen is that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus there is never a time in your life where you graduate from this and the deeper you get into it, and I see some of you that are old wise and saints in the room and you know this You've been walking with Jesus for decade upon decade upon decade upon decade. And I am guessing that if we got in a conversation with you, you'd say, oh, this only grows more in importance as you go along. That you start realizing that it's his strong shoulders that are carrying the world. That it's his strong arms that are holding your life together. And so the privilege of the people of God is to wake up in the morning and even though every temptation of our mind is to take it upon ourselves, we go, no, it's yours here. Just walking alongside you in the highest heights and in the lowest depths. Corey Ten Boom, a Holocaust survivor, once said that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And we know that that's true because Jesus has descended into the pit of our lives and he found us there. And so what can we say about Jesus from the apostles' teaching? That he is the one who is with us. But I think the second thing that we can say about Jesus, number two, is that Jesus is the one who calls us. Everybody say, Jesus is the one who calls us. He's the one who calls us. And the call of God always makes us more. Think about the Old Testament. Again, Jesus is the fulfillment of what happens in the Old Testament. Think about how often in the Old Testament God comes up alongside somebody and the call of God all of a sudden makes them more. You got Abraham, who's just kind of in Ur of the Chaldees, living in his father's house. And all of a sudden the call of God comes to him. And he's not just Abram anymore, but he's Abraham, the father of many nations. Or think about Moses tending his father-in-law Jethro's sheep on the backside of Midian. And he sees the burning bush there and God calls to him from within the bush. And what happens to Moses? He becomes the deliverer of Israel. Moses, who we would have never heard about. Think about David. David tending his father's sheep. And, and, and Samuel comes to Jesse and he's looking for the next king of Israel. And one after one and one after another after another after another of Jesse's brothers are marched in front of Samuel. And Samuel goes, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. And then there is David. 
When Samuel sees David and pours the horn of oil on him and says, here's the Lord's anointed, and all of a sudden we know something about David. Why? Because God called him. And the same is true of the New Testament. All of those guys, the early disciples, they were just fishing. They were doing whatever. And the call of God comes to a guy like Simon Peter. And Simon is transformed into this cornerstone of the church. And we know something about Simon. Why? Because God called him. Do you understand that about the call of God? That when we say yes to God, it transfigures our lives. It makes them more than they ever would have been on their own. Think about what Paul says to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. But not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were even of noble birth. But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God shows the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that nobody may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. Therefore, as it's written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Paul's like, look at you guys. You were a bunch of two-bit nothings. And God called you, and it made your life meaningful. It made it beautiful. Do you know that about Jesus? Do you know that when you surrender your life to Jesus, it does something to your life that you could never? And we have this. It's one of the core needs of the human heart, to have our lives count for something. But the problem is, in secular culture, we just think that the whole burden of that falls upon us. And so, therefore, we have to become the next whatever, the next American idol, the next owner of the great multinational corporation, the next whatever it is. We've got to make a name for ourselves. And the New Testament doesn't say anything about making a name for yourselves. You know what it says? It says that when you say yes to Jesus, what happens is that God gives you a name. It's a gift. You just got to say yes. I remember one distinct moment when the call of God came to me. I was in college, and I was a business student at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, I had felt a call to ministry for most of my life. <laughs> and, uh, but I was a business student, and nothing was really happening on the ministry front. And I kind of sensed this like, thing in my spirit that God was also calling me to preach one day. But what was really weird about that was that I was like in this season where, of my life where I was terrified to death of public speaking, which I know sounds ridiculous to you. Like Mr. Gabby up there on the stage. But I was. They like, asked me to give a three-minute presentation in speech class in college on the relative merits of this vacuum cleaner versus the other one, and I'd lock up, you know? And I was in a fight. You ever been in a fight with God? I was in a fight with God about all that. I sensed the Lord calling me into ministry, but I just went, I, Lord, I don't know. There's nothing going on in my life that points in that direction. You know what I mean? And moreover, I've got this, like, thing going on, this, like, fear of public speaking. And I don't know how you're going to use a guy like me. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the credentials. I don't have the training. I don't have anything. And I was in a fight all morning long with God. I remember going. It was a Tuesday morning. And I was heading into economics class, and I went into the General Student Center at Oral Roberts University, and I could show you the step. I could show you the step that I was standing on, walking into the General Student Center, and I said, and I said God, I just can't do all of that. And I got my foot on the step, and I heard the Lord say to me, Andrew Arndt, which by the way is strange. Whenever God barks at me, do you know what it sounds like? My mom. And there's a word to the wise in there somewhere. Andrew Arndt, the Lord said to me, don't you think I knew about all of that when I called you? Like you think that you're telling me something I don't know about you? 
you think, oh, oh, really? Oh, gosh. Yeah, you're right. You definitely can't do the things that I'm asking you to do because I wasn't aware of those things, Andrew. Come on. Every life is transparent to me. All of human history is transparent to me. Do you think that you're telling me anything that I don't know? Isn't it just possible, Andrew Arndt, that all of the things that you think are disqualifiers from the call of God are actually the very things that I've put together in your life that qualify you for the thing that I'm asking you to do? Don't you think I knew about those things when I, when I talk about a call from God that melted all of the hardness of my heart? Oh, okay. I said, yes. And the call has made me more. And it's not just great calls into ministry. It's every calling of our life makes us more. The calling to marriage, the calling to parenting, the calling to our job, the calling to be good neighbors. The call, uh, we all have various callings. Everything that goes along with our gifts and our abilities, when we say yes to Jesus, it doesn't matter how inadequate we feel. When we say yes to Jesus, somehow it transforms our lives. It makes them more. And so Jesus is the one who is with us, and Jesus is the one who calls us. Would you say yes to the call of Jesus? It will make your life more. Number three, uh, Jesus is the one, I'll say this to you this morning, who forgives us. Aren't you grateful for that gift? Think about, again, the Old Testament story, how often the Lord comes to his people and just forgives them over and over again. Their hard-heartedness, their rebellion, their transgression, and God keeps like lifting the burden off of them. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Yeah, it's pretty far. And God's like, every time you screw up, I'm taking that thing away. As far as the east is from the west, so far... Has he taken our transgressions from us? And Jesus comes along. Jesus is Israel's God in the flesh. And over and over again, he says to people, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Like, I don't know what your burden is. I don't know what your shame is. I don't know what the guilt is that you're carrying. But right now, here and now, I'm lifting that off of you. And so 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, John just says, he's one of Jesus' best friends. He says, this is all that you got to do. Listen, he says that if we confess our sins, you know what he is? He's not mean, he's not angry, he's not bullying, he's not making you feel worse about yourselves. If we just confess our sins, you know what he is? He is faithful and he's just (laughs) to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, not just the sins that we know about that we're saying, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what I mean? So like we come to God and we were like, we're like, I barked at my kids again. God, help. I didn't want to do that, but I did it. And the Lord's like, you're honest. Oh, cool. I'm going to take that one off your shoulders and everything else off your shoulders. And you can stand before me like you never failed every time that's accessible to us. Do you know that? And do you know that God is more eager to forgive us than we even are to be forgiven? Like God is rushing out to meet us with mercy and forgiveness. I remember some years ago, I was a pastor in Denver, and I was having one of those weeks, I was a young pastor, and I just had one of those weeks where it felt like I couldn't do anything right. You know what I mean? And I'm like wandering around, it felt like every meeting I screwed up, and every interaction I screwed up, and it felt like the whole church was mad at me, and it was just one of those weeks. I hate those weeks. And I remember I had this practice of prayer back in those days where when dinner was done, I would go down into my office and I would sit with the Bible in front of me and I would just kind of flip through. I would read a passage of scripture and just kind of have a little devotional time before I headed into the rest of the evening. And that evening with the weight of the world on my shoulders and me feeling like I was just the biggest idiot on planet earth, I remember opening the scriptures to Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter five rather, and Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you're the light of the world. 
And I don't know if you've ever had like a moment where you were reading the scriptures where you kind of wanted to, uh, well, basically like tell God that he's wrong. But I had that. I'm sitting there with all of this stuff on me for my whole week, you know, and here's the text of scripture in front of me. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And I was like, I am not. You're the light of the world. No, I'm not. You are the light of the world. You got the wrong guy. I ain't the light of the world. Have you seen the kind of week that I have? I'm not the light of the world. I'm the darkness of the world is what I am. That would have been more accurate, Jesus. You say, you're the darkness of the world. Then I can be like, yes, finally we're having a conversation. You're the light of the world. No, I'm not. I'm not. You know what I am? I'm the scum of the earth. That's what I am. And there's biblical precedent for that. Paul says something like that in 1 Corinthians. You know, 2 Corinthians. We're the scum. I'll claim that one. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. And if God says something about you, do you know that it's true? And here's me in the middle of all of my angst about my terrible things that I've done and I can't get anything right and everybody is mad at me and Jesus keeps saying to me, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. And the gospel is the story of Jesus told as a promise. You are the light of the world. And somehow what happened in the middle of all of that is that all of that guilt and all of that frustration and all that angst that I was carrying, you know what happened to it? Fell down. Fell down. And I'm like the prodigal son, you know what I mean? Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not even worthy. And God's like, where's the ring? Put the ring on the finger and the sandals on the feet and throw the... It's like he disregards even my confession and your confession. He's like, I'm just happy to have you home. We're here now. Remember, you're the light of the world. You're the people of God. You're the children of the living God. And we experience it as this ridiculous kindness, a kindness that transforms us. You know what Paul says in Romans chapter 2? He says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And all of a sudden, I get up out of that prayer time, and I've got, like, energy in my spirit to go and be right and to do right and to live right for God. Why? Not because God was crushing me, but because God was giving his forgiveness to me. And so Jesus is the one who is with us, and he's the one who calls us, and he's the one who forgives us. You know what else Jesus is? Jesus is the one who heals us. Do you know this about our God? Do you know that our God is not some frozen, inert deity up in the clouds that just kind of is watching stuff happen down here, and he's like, oh, gosh, kind of looks rough. God from the word go in in the scriptures gets involved. And when God gets involved, it's not for destruction, but when God gets involved, he gets involved for the sake of life. Yahweh says to his people in the Old Testament, I am the Lord who heals you. But he just is God, the God that we worship in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just is life. And so when God starts moving among his people, life breaks out everywhere, which is why when you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus doing all the stuff that he does among the people, it's like healing everywhere. And there is never a time that somebody comes to Jesus saying, Jesus, Master, I need you to heal me. And Jesus is like, well, I don't know about that. You know, it's just not the will of my Father in heaven to heal you. He doesn't do that. There's this commentary that Luke makes about Jesus in the New Testament where Luke says that Jesus was in the midst of the people and he was teaching. And it says that power was coming out from him and healing them all. But he just is radiant, healing life in the midst of broken, marred, scarred, dying humanity. That's what Jesus is. He's a healer. And when we come in proximity to Jesus, he heals our bodies. Can I just brag on Jesus for a second here? Want to hear a story from my church back in Colorado? Sweet young couple in our church, Holly and Joseph are their names. They got a couple kids and they got pregnant earlier this year. 
And they were at about the 20-week mark, and so they went in for one of the ultrasounds. And when they went in for the ultrasound, the uh, doctor was doing the thing and said, hey, um, they, like, they could tell. It's like the thing that you don't want to have happen, actually, when you go in for one of these appointments, that all of a sudden the doctor or the nurse or whatever starts looking a little concerned. And the nurse is trying to get her images and, sh- and stuff, and she says, you know, there's like one image of the brain that I'm looking for that I, that I need to see that I can't find. And I don't know if maybe the baby's not like in the right position today, but I wonder if you guys would be willing to come back in a week or so, and when you come back, maybe the baby will have flipped a little bit and we'll be able to get a better image. And so they do that. They schedule another appointment for a week later, and they go in for the second ultrasound, and still they can't find this piece of the brain. And then they go in for a third ultrasound, and it's the same thing, can't find it. And they say, listen, it appears to us that your baby is missing a critical piece of its brain called the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum is a piece of the brain that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, gets them talking to one another, so it has a lot to do with coordination and motor function and even vision. It's, it's not a small piece of the brain. It's a major piece. And Holly and Joseph are completely beside themselves with grief and fear. Joseph is away on a business trip, and we host a weekly prayer meeting at our church, and Holly gets up at the prayer meeting. That one of the prayer meeting leaders had said, you know, I just think that the power of the Lord is here to heal. And so if you need healing or somebody that you know needs healing, I wonder if you wouldn't mind coming up and the group here will lay their hands on you. And so Holly comes up and she's got the ultrasound picture. And she says, I've been to the doctor now three times. Here's the ultrasound picture. This is my baby. My baby's name is Asher. Asher is a Hebrew word that means happy or blessed. She says, I got a little boy growing in my womb that's missing a piece of its brain and we don't know what to do. And I'm just wondering if you guys would come around me and pray. So the group gets around her and they pray. They call down the power of God upon her and upon the baby that is growing in her womb. She goes back for an MRI one week later. The doctor takes all of the images, comes back in the room and says, Holly, I don't know what to tell you, but you have a healthy baby boy growing in your womb. I will never, I was telling my daughter this this morning, I will, as long as I live, I will never get over that. And you say, well, Andrew, why does God not heal some people? He does heal other people. And what's that? I, I, don't, I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I knew the mystery of why God does I wish I knew the mystery of the God. We don't know those things. They're impenetrable to us. But we do know that the promise of the Lord is that I am the God who heals you. And there's something about Jesus that when he walks into the room, He makes things better. He fixes things. And it's not just our physical bodies, but he does this. He he brings deliverance to us in our finances and in our families and in our jobs. He does that. He can turn things around. He plucks us up out of the situation. Think about how often the psalmist said that all of a sudden the cords of death were entangled me and the anguish of the grave was upon me and I called out to you. I called and you answered me. You drew my feet up from that place and you set me in a firm place, a wide place, and you put a hymn of praise in my mouth. The psalmist knows, like all of the Bible writers know, that our God is a God that turns things around. I don't know what you're holding this morning, but maybe you're holding something that needs to be turned around. I want to encourage you this morning to reach out in faith. Because that's what Jesus responds to all over the place in the New Testament. When people reach out to him in faith, sometimes Jesus isn't even aware of what they're doing. But they just believe that because they're around him, when they extend their faith, they get healed. And it will happen that they extend their faith to Jesus and power will go out from him and turn their situation around. I don't know what it is for you this morning, but your faith in Jesus. He'll turn it around. And so he's the one who's with us. And he's the one who calls us. And he's the one who forgives us. And he's the one who heals us. But more than all of this, Jesus is the one who, say real loud, church, He's the one who saves us. He saves us. The name Jesus 
actually means that Yahweh saves. And if there is one single theme that binds the whole scripture together, it is this, that our God is a saving God. And usually what we think of when we think of saving is we think of something like what we just talked about, healing. It's Jesus plucking us up out of situations or transforming something real quick, but there is another and I think a more deeper way in which God saves. Watch what the psalmist says here. There are lots of places in the scriptures where we could go to see this, but watch what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, for he has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, God, tested us and you refined us like silver. You brought us into prison, Uh uh-oh, and you laid burden on our backs. Next verse. You let people ride over our heads. What? We went through fire and water. We went through fire and water. But you did what? Say it loud, church. You brought us to it. We went through the fire and the water. You preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. But then he says, we actually went through all of this difficult stuff and you brought us now into this place of abundance. And I want to say this to you, church, this morning in the few moments that I have left with you, is that one of the most important ways that God, like God doesn't, I'll say it this way, that God doesn't just save us from the things that we go through, but he also saves us through the things that we go through. And there are times that you will come to in your life when you are calling out deliverance. Great deliverance does not come. And when that moment happens, when the great deliverance does not come, it might just be that what God is doing is he's saving you through the circumstance. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus crying out to his father, if there is any other way, God, I would rather not do it this way. And yet, if this is the only thing, like if this is where the road is narrowed, I'm all in with you, oh God. Let your kingdom come. The church has referred to this as the Paschal Mystery. The way in which somehow in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, death has actually been transformed. We sang it earlier in the service. Death is just a doorway into resurrection life. And some of you might be facing a thing this morning where it's totally intractable, where there's no way of changing it whatsoever. And I want to just encourage you, if that's the case, then what you need to do is respond to the invitation of the Spirit to let that thing be a doorway of death into resurrection Life And I know this, I can speak about this because I've been through this. And with this, I'll invite the band to come forward. One final story, and then I'm going to pray over you. In 2009, I moved to Denver to help some friends plant a church and had every intention of my life there. I kept telling the church, 30 years, that's what we're going to do together. It's going to be a 30-year run, and it didn't work out that way. I've heard people say sometimes that if you want to hear God laugh, just make plans. And I remember getting to about the seven or eight year mark and my wife and I felt so deeply in our bones that God was asking us to lay down that thing and just move on, give the leadership up to somebody else and take the next step into our lives. And so we did that. It was the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life. And I mean that. We moved to Colorado Springs, took a new job there. And it was such a disorienting experience in so many ways. It was like the death of a dream. That church in Denver is the only thing I'd ever dreamed of doing with my life. When I thought about the future, I thought about that and that was it. And then we moved to Colorado Springs, and I've told people that it felt like getting put in a witness protection program. You know what I mean? Like, here's your new job, here are your friends, here's your credit card, here's your house, blah, blah, blah. Like, have a nice life. Or like if you took uh, Harry Potter, you know, I don't, and you plucked him out of Harry Potter land, and you dropped him into Middle Earth, you know, and you put him in, like, how does he know who he is and what he's supposed to do? That's how I felt. Who am I? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And you know what I kept doing during that season? I kept concocting resurrection stories for myself. 
Oh, you know what I need to do? I need to start making plans to plant a new church over here. Oh, you know what I need to do? I need to jump into a doctoral program to do this thing over there. Oh, you know what I need to do? I kept like trying to wiggle my way out of the grave. And do you know what? During that whole, it was a season of about two and a half years. And finally, I sensed the Spirit saying to me, Andrew, would you just stop? Would you just rest? Like, do you know that it's just possible, Andrew, that this thing that you feel like is so odious to you is in fact the exact thing that your soul needs to go through a transformation? Maybe what you need to do, this thing that feels like a death to you, Maybe you just need to lie down in this grave and leave the work of resurrection into the hands of the one who holds the keys of death and hell. You know, what strikes me as amazing is that when we bury somebody in the ground, what do we say over them? We say, rest in peace. And our baptism is an invitation for us to rest in peace before we finally rest in peace. To know that when we come to those places where it feels like we're dying, that the invitation of the Lord is to go, I know. And let this be a place where you discover transformation, a place where you rest in peace. And I don't know if that's where you are this morning. But it might be that what you need to do this morning is an act of faith in the Lord Jesus who has transformed death and made it into a doorway into resurrection life. Is that you need to take that difficult thing and you need to say, as Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so church, I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. And as you stand and as the band is here, I'm also going to invite our prayer partners to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, they're going to be available during this response song for you to come forward and receive prayer. But I'm praying over you. Church, just lift your hands like this. It's a posture of receiving. And I don't know what you need this morning. I don't know what the desires of your hearts are. Uh, hearts are. I don't know what the need of your heart is. But Jesus has everything for you. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, I'm praying to you over my brothers and sisters in this room. I'm asking this morning, that if they need an assurance that you are with them, that you would give it to them. I'm asking that if you need to give them courage to respond anew to the call of God, that you would give that to them. I'm asking that if the burden is heavy on their shoulders from their guilt and the weight of their past, I'm asking, burden bearer, that you would take it from them this morning. I'm praying over all of those in this house that need a miracle, those that need a, a miracle in their bodies, a financial miracle, a relational miracle. I'm asking, Lord Jesus... We're asking you to come with your healing power. And I'm asking this morning that for all of us, wherever the road has narrowed to a point where we know this is the way that we must go, and it feels as though we're getting ready to plunge into the valley of the shadow of death, I pray that you'd give us confidence to know that we can go there because you went there first. You've harrowed hell. You've passed through the gates of death. And you're inviting us to rest in peace even in that place of death knowing that our resurrection is your responsibility and not ours. So grant that, I ask, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen.